Okay, well, uh, as Brian mentioned, this is our first week of a series called You Asked For It. And the idea behind it was that each week we would gather and we would field some questions from you guys, Northwest Community Church. And I got to tell you right now, you guys ask some very difficult questions, very smart people we have here. You know what's very interesting is because there are hardly any lights on, I can see everybody that's got an iPhone or an iPad, your faces are glowing. And of course, we know that they're taking notes. Oh, absolutely. Or playing Tetris, one of the two. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, about five, six weeks ago, we had a couple opportunities for you guys to text in questions or email questions or manually fill them out. We've gathered them. We probably have seven or 80 uh, different questions uh, all listed out. So what we've tried to do for this summer, for the next seven or eight weeks, we've categorized them and we're going to try and tackle six or seven different questions per week. Sometimes it's going to be in a format like this with several people on stage kind of going back and forth. Sometimes it's just going to be one person up here. Sometimes we've got a couple of guest speakers coming in this summer to to handle one topic in particular. So that's very exciting. But I want to invite you to come every single Sunday that you can. And if you have to miss for being out of town, keep up with the the podcast and everything else so that we can uh, all journey through this together. So to start out, the first thing, we've got the listing of what we're going to be tackling here today. And the first two are somewhat similar, talking about our personal calling to ministry and some of the different mistakes that we've made in ministry. Specifically, these questions came in, what is the funniest thing you've said on stage? What is your most embarrassing ministry moment? Some of those types of things. Um, So... You've probably had more of those than I. Why don't you go ahead? And just strictly I probably have experience. I probably That's have, even I though meant. I'm younger. That's what's really odd, you know. <laughs> yes, I have. I, in fact, I told Jerry yesterday. I, I, I said, you know, there are. I, I was a student pastor for 20 years, and so I said a lot of things in student ministry that uh, you're going, man. I, if I would have said that in big church, I would have been really in trouble. And, and when that happens, I said to Jerry, when that happens, you just take that fact of student ministry that you go, ah, those high school kids, they're probably not listening anyway. You know, so you say something and then you just, you know. So there are too many actually to count and several that I recount, but I'm not going to tell you about because this is big church. I will tell you about that uh, over, a, um, over an ACP at Lost Trace. I'll definitely do that. But let me just tell you something happened just a few months ago. I was waxing eloquent on a Sunday morning, and I forget what I was talking about, but I wanted to use the word regurgitate. So badly I wanted to use that word. It fit within context, and the only word that kept coming out was regurgitate. I said it three times. Some of you, again, you're not paying attention, just like high school kids. You're not paying attention at all. But I, I kept saying it, and then somebody would go, that's not the word. I don't even think that is a word. And then I'd say it again. And just in those few seconds, something would say, that's not a word. And so I would say it one more time. And finally, I just thought, I'm just going to let that slide. Hopefully nobody heard it. Well, one person in particular, several people, but one person in particular, the man who is holier than Billy Graham himself, Mr. Matt Rice, he did hear me say it. And what's really funny about me, and, and you, those of you that know me know that I, I, I have this reputation, I'm sure. Things that strike me as funny, things that happen, I never let them die. I carry them for decades, do I not? Yes, you do. I just remember them, and I have fun with those moments. And Matt Rice, he typically doesn't do that. He's a nice guy. That's why we send him to the hospitals to see you when you're in need. He prays with you. He's nice to you, right? 
Matt Rice, of all people, has he not mocked me continuously? He has regurgitated that joke he several times. He has done that many, many times. In fact, as I was recalling the story, Jerry, you can see it in my notes right there. I had to write down the word regurgitate. Otherwise, I figured I probably would not say it correctly. Matt has so wounded me in my heart, in my spirit. So when you speak enough up front, you're going to have those problems. You've had a couple yeah, of Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, well, when I was younger, I had a speech impediment. I couldn't quite uh, say my R's, you know, correctly. R's are a tough one. And Joey, so, Joey. Yeah, exactly. That's how I'd say my name. My name's Joey Hines, <laughs> you know. And so every now and again, you know, I worked on that, whatever, you, you get better. But every now and again, like that little, that little tiny thing just kind of pops up again and like kind of takes over your mind for some reason. So recently, I mean, it was a couple of years ago, but I'm up preaching and I'm just telling this story. I'm like, man, I got into this water and I started to wade out and the water was up to heel. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, here is what I meant. I'm not sure where that came from. But uh, every now and again, that, that kind of stuff happens. And, uh, you know, another one that we love to poke fun at, and I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this story, is one time I totally botched a baptism. My wife still finds this hilarious. This is good. I still find it hilarious. It, it, it was funny. It was funny. I'm not sure if the guy will ever forgive me, yeah. but it was no, funny. He no, he was like a last second addition. And as I remember, this was like a big tall guy. And like, typically, you know, you're backstage and I like to go over, okay, here's what to do. And like, just trust me, you know, bend your knees and like, I'll take care of you and whatever. I don't remember if he wasn't there for that. The whole thing I've tried to block out of my memory, but one way or another, we got up there and the spotlights were on and the video cameras were on I think and anyway I'm up in front of big church and this cat's up here and I'm ready for that the deed and he was just kind of resistant a little bit and it was kind of a little awkward and I'm trying to get him down and I didn't get him down as far as I should have and I'm not sure any of the hair on his head it really got under you got in big trouble for that I too. kind of did I kind of did so what do you do at that moment? It's like we pull them back up and like the rest of them was wet. And, you know, I'm not sure if anybody out in the crowd would have. Well, they probably did notice. Come to think of it now. So what do you do? Hey, buddy, can we try that again? You know, like, no, we just let it go. And it ended up being kind of a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah. And we've never let you forget that. Either, I know. So. I know. I deserve the regurgitate thing. So, sure. so, so anymore, anymore, I just make sure to hold them under for like five seconds just yeah. to. Just a little yeah, added Do not redemption. let Jerry baptize you. There's Just the a little added day. cleansing before they All come right. up to make sure. Why don't you um, talk about your calling to ministry? Yep. Another several questions came in about, man, how did you know that God wanted you in ministry? What did that look like? Well, for me, I was headed to Cedarville University in Ohio. I wanted to go into advertising and business. I loved ideas and concepts, and that's kind of the direction that I was headed. I decided to go to a place called Baptist Bible College just for one year. I was much closer to my house in New Jersey, and I got a discount there because my dad was a pastor, and I loved God, and I wanted to learn more about that before I headed off you know, to another Christian college, but not quite the same intense Bible training as a, as a Bible college. So it was about halfway through my freshman year when a man by the name of Ken Rudolph invited me to go to a retreat with him. Ken worked at BBC at the time. He's a speaker at Lake Ann. Many of our students are familiar with him. He's spoken here before in the past, and he's going to speak here this summer. You guys are going to love him. I mean, he's coming in August. But Ken Rudolph, this legendary man, kind of took me under his wing and invited me to go with him to a youth retreat. 
you know, just playing the guitar and leading to worship and that sort of thing. And there was five or six hundred students here at this retreat. Ken was there sharing the gospel and he gave an invitation and literally 60 or 70 or 80 kids came forward. It was just a massive outpouring of decision. And a lot of these counselors were kind of new and not real theologically sound and they were just mostly parents. They didn't really know what to do. And so the director came up to Ken. And he's like, we don't have leaders. Like, I don't know what we should be doing now. So Ken goes, Jerry, go down there and talk to those kids and share the gospel with them. And I was 18 years old. I mean, barely older than, than these kids who were seniors in high school. But I was just thrown into it. And I just break out my Bible and start sharing from Romans and like with this big group of kids and sharing the gospel with them and praying with them. And, and later on that night, I remember Ken was like, Jerry, have you ever thought about going into ministry? You did a great job out there, man. I could really see that in you. And that was honestly a turning point where I really felt like somebody who I loved and trusted poured into me, saw that gift and confirmed by the desires that God was giving me in my heart. As I was volunteering, even at that time with middle school and high school students at a church and just in love with that age group and, and where they were. And I remember when I was there and, and how my youth pastor invested in me and helped shape the direction of my life. And so I just felt like it was such a high and holy, amazing calling that I stayed there for college and went to seminary and God's just opened up amazing platforms to be able to be engaged in ministry. That's great. I've known Ken for over 25 years and I am incredibly thankful for the investment. Are you not thankful for that, for the investment that Ken made in Jerry's life and uh, that we have the opportunity to, uh, to benefit from Jerry's ministry because of that, uh, because of that one moment, really? Mm -hmm. God used. Well, many of you have heard me talk about my calling to ministry. When I was in high school, I wanted to be an architect. And it really wasn't because, because I liked architecture that much. I mean, I like houses. I like real estate. I've always had that, that interest and even do today. But it was more because I was influenced by this great TV show of days gone by called The Brady Bunch. And I now want to sing for you the story. Here's a, come on, Jerry, sing with I'm me. I'm not going to. Here's the story of, of a man, man named Brady. Yeah, there we go. Okay, stop. Don't start, okay? And I, I remember watching that show when I was in grade school and thinking, now there's the life, right? I mean, there is life. Everybody else wanted to be Batman or somebody like that. No, I wanted to be Mike Brady. He had domestic help. He had Alice. And when he came home from his work as an architect, there Carol was, she hadn't been doing a blasted thing all day long, except getting ready for his entrance home. Alice's been taking care of the kids, she's been making dinner, she's been doing everything, and I go, that is the life. And if I could just be Mike Brady, and of course you know Mike was an architect, right? He had a great house, he had a boat, he went on vacations, he had Alice, did I say that? He had Alice. And, uh, and I thought that would be just awesome. And so all the way through high school, that's what I wanted to do. My mom and dad wanted me to go to one year of Bible college, which I always thought was interesting. They want me to go to one year of Bible college. They don't have any money for me to go to Bible college. Yeah. They were poor. Before, before we get into the serious stuff, you know, you elaborated a little bit more first hour yeah. on one other piece of that. What's that? On Brady Carol? Bunch. He was rather smitten with Carol. Brady. Carol, yeah, yeah. I just want, I just want to make sure that was, that was freely shared. Yeah. Not anymore. I mean, uh, well, I just, of course you know, not. Little boy, and you know how that goes. Not so much Alice. I just liked her domestic skills. So it was, it's great. Don't interrupt me again. All right. <laughs> just getting into the call of God on my life, and that's why I wanted to get that in there. So I, I, my mom and dad wanted me to go to one year of Bible college. I went to one year of Bible college, 
I had to pay for it, of course. And I got there, and, and that's a whole other story for another day of what my motivations were at Bible college. They were not wholesome. They really were not to study God's word. But there were lots of Christian girls at Bible college. I loved Bible college. Let me just say to you, high school kids, you have any doubt about what you want to do with your life? If you're not certain, go to Bible college, guys. It's a great, great place. I enjoyed it. More to come later. But that was great. I was there my freshman year. And just like with Jerry, God put some men in my life who just saw potential in me. Which as I look back, I go, what the heck did they see? I mean, all I was doing was running around wanting to date a girl from every state that was represented there at the Bible college. And one man just saw something in me in spite of my childish antics. And God used him to open up that door of the possibility that God could use me in ministry. And ended up, never left, and got my education. Did 20 years in student ministry, and, um, and it's, been a, it's been a great, it's been a great uh, journey. Hmm. Jerry, another question was asked about when we got baptized. You were, yeah. you were 11. Yep, I was 11, and I, uh, I, I became a Christian in uh, 1980. So I was five, so I was very young. Again, grew up in a pastor's home, and that's kind of a traditional story, right? A lot, a lot of us that grow up in ministry make that decision very young. But, you know, like with a lot of people, it didn't become more clear or more real until I got a little bit older. But I, I was 11, and my dad baptized me in our church, which was very special, in our small little church there in New Jersey. And, you know, just continued along the path, kind of like you. I mean, lots of ups and downs and bad motivations and everything else. But I can look back now and see the grace that God has had on my life to continue to mature me. Yeah. And to this day. And I trusted Christ when I was nine years old, having grown up in a Christian home, and probably like Jerry, you heard the gospel how many times before age 11? And yet it wasn't until age nine that I fully understood that I was a sinner and I needed Jesus. I needed a Savior. And I can remember, some of you have heard me talk about this before, I remember that night just like it happened last night. It was on a Sunday, in fact. It was on a Sunday night. I can remember it just so crystal clearly. And I'm thankful for my testimony. Uh, you know, a lot of times you hear people give their testimony and they talk about, you know, yeah, I was doing this and I was doing that and I was living this life and I was pushing drugs down in, the, down in Mexico and, you know, I was about ready to be assassinated and Jesus came down and spoke to me. And I, I remember thinking over the years, well, I wish I had a testimony like that. Hmm. That'd be exciting. I mean, people sit and listen to that. The older I've gotten, though, I'm thankful that I have the testimony that I do. God saved me from a bunch of that, but he saved me as a sinner. And I trusted Christ when I was nine years old and was baptized just a, a few weeks later. And I'm very, I'm very thankful for that. And so those of you that are here this morning, your kids, middle school, high school kids, other grade school kids, man, be, be thankful that you know and you understand the gospel today yeah. because you have all of your life now uh, to live for Jesus and to avoid so many of the things that so many people have as part of their testimony uh, that they'd love not to have as their testimony. So it's great that God, that God uh, draws kids uh, to himself, and Jerry and I are certainly a testimony of that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, one of the first questions that was asked, just so we uh, go ahead and just let the cat out of the bag and we start getting into all these controversial topics that we will get into over the next uh, several weeks, one question that was asked was about the role of women in the church. What roles can women fill in ministry in the church? And this is an area, it's an issue where Bible-believing Christians can and do disagree. Now, obviously, we have a position here at Northwest, and we believe very sincerely that that 
position is based on a clear teaching in Scripture. But I do recognize that I have friends that uh, differ from me uh, on uh, this issue. The point of separation typically centers around passages of Scripture that forbid women to speak in church or to assume authority over men. We won't take time to go there, but you can mark these down if you're taking notes. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul again alludes to the same idea that there is a spiritual leadership and authority that God has given and structure that God has given. And the disagreement comes as to whether or not those passages were relevant just for the time in which they were written or whether they are just as relevant today. And some would contend that with what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, where he's talking about in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, they would say that that then gives freedom for women to pursue any field of ministry, whether or not they exercise spiritual authority over men. Others hold to the position, as we do here at Northwest, that 1 Timothy 2.12 still applies today. In fact, if you look in your Bible and you go all the way back to Genesis, it's very obvious that God had a structure of authority and leadership that he established in the two institutions which he gave us in Scripture, and that is the home and the church. And there's an order that he established in creation. It's interesting that as you get into 1 Peter chapter 5, for example, and we see the detailed qualifications of an elder, that a word that is used, a Greek word that's used 66 times in the New Testament to indicate a seasoned male overseer, it's the word presbyteros. I don't know if you know this, probably many of you don't, but there is also a feminine form of that Greek word. It is presbyteros. And it is never used in Scripture in reference to elders or to shepherds. Based on the qualifications that we see in 1 Peter and in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And since we believe that Scripture is very clear that in 1 Timothy 2.12, a woman shouldn't exercise authority, spiritual authority, over a man, it seems clear to us, and our position is, that with regards to elders who are equipped to teach and to lead a congregation, to exercise spiritual authority over a church, that that office is very clear to us, reserved for men. Now, having said that, I oftentimes, when I say that, I think, well, that feeds right in to the liberal argument, which says that we have a very low view of women in evangelical churches. And that is certainly, certainly not true. We have a very high view of women, in fact, As somebody who's been here from the beginning of Northwest, I recognize there would not be a Northwest Community Church if it weren't for women that have been here since day one. One of which, and primarily my wife, and the role that she has served in many other women. However, we do believe that that term elder, bishop, appears to be the only office that is reserved for men. And so women have always played a significant role since the beginning. You remember they were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. The Apostle Paul held women in very, very high regard. In fact, in many of of his letters, he addresses them personally. He addresses them as co-workers, as co-laborers, and he makes it very clear that they benefit and they serve the whole church. And we believe there are two offices that were in the early church and are still to be in churches today, and that is the office of deacon and elder. 
There are a lot of churches, in fact, some of you have come from these churches where they confuse the two offices and a deacon is an elder, an elder is a deacon. That's not correct. There are two very distinct offices. If you've been around Northwest any length of time, you've heard us talk and teach about those things. And although some churches interchange those, we certainly don't here at Northwest. We have an office of elder and an office of deacons. Deacons were appointed, if you remember, in Acts chapter 6, they were appointed to do what? To serve the body so that the elders might give themselves to teaching, to preaching, and to the administration of the church. They were given in order that they literally might care after widows, orphans, and other needs within the local church body. In fact, if you read in Romans chapter 16, we meet a lady by the name of Phoebe. And Phoebe, most Bible scholars think there's, there's no doubt that Phoebe served as a diakonos, as a deaconess in the early church. And so as we started Northwest, we also decided that we were going to be very biblical in our church leadership. And we believe that that role certainly had women involved in it in the early church. And we do that here at Northwest. And I'm very, very thankful for the women that serve in that role here at Northwest. They do a great job. They've been a great uh, addition uh, to our team, as well as the men that serve there. And so we don't believe there's any biblical precedent, any scriptural precedent, which prohibits women from serving in any other area of church ministry, as worship leaders, as youth leaders, and in our children's ministry. The only restriction is that they don't assume the role of spiritual authority over men in the role of an elder. And that's where we stand and where we think scripture is, is, is very, very clear. It's a great question. A lot more could be said about that, but that kind of wraps it up in a nutshell. And I always, I, I said last hour in our notes, it's a great transition now because our next question in line is, how do we explain dinosaurs and evolution? That is the way, by the way, that we explain dinosaurs and because of our view of women, we can easily explain dinosaurs and evolution, right? I'm not going to respond to that because yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, that was a very interesting question, several along the lines of, you know, as you're ta- speaking with children, how do we talk about dinosaurs? How do we explain evolution to them in the home compared to what they're getting at a lot of school systems or if you watch pretty much anything on the Discovery Channel? How do you, how do you interact with that? So a couple <laughs> things I want to share. You know, number one, in talking about dinosaurs, how many people have seen Jurassic World? Raise your hand up really high, right? I saw it, and I saw Jurassic Park as well. I personally don't see any reason why we, we should uh, take a look at all the evidence of all the you know, bones that they found and skeletons that they found and everything else and <laughs> say that there was no such thing as dinosaurs. My view on the uh, scientific world is that a lot of times that will just increase my ability to give God glory when we take a look at the world, when we take a a look at the body and scientific method and everything else and, and see how complex our world and our solar system is. So when you, when you look at the facts of how, you know, people measured time, for example, carbon dating and, and all of these other things, you know, for, for some, that's a big, red flag in comparison to our view as believers that, hey, I believe that God created the world and I've got no problem with saying that was in six literal days, like it says in Genesis. For some, they look at, you know, when people talk about tens of thousands of years ago, this happened, or millions of years ago, this happened. And you look at the biblical view and that view, for many, that's very confusing. They don't mesh at all. But one thing that I've come across and and been using in my own home to communicate with my kids is the idea of appearance of age. 
Because when you talk about creation, you talk about God and he's got the ability as God to create the universe and to create solar systems and just at the, at the just blink of an eye, he could create land and sea and animals on the land and fish in the sea and even humans, right? He breathed into Adam the breath of life in an instant and there was Adam. He was a living being. When you think about that and you think about Adam, here he is. And if you were to take Adam, if he was living today and bring him to a hospital and they were to do a bone scan or they were to test his blood or any other way that they can in modern technology and science to figure out exactly how old he is, it would come back that he's approximately 20-year-old or 25 or 30-year-old man. That's what all the tests say. So I'm not going to say that those <coughs> tests are wrong or those tests are faulty or we should just throw all that out. Instead, I'm going to say, well, no, he's actually 30 seconds old because God just created him. And all of your tests are fine, but they're just not reality because God created him with the appearance of age. And so when you think about that type of illustration, at some levels, that, that can help people understand the age of uh, the earth and, and, and that sort of thing. Still believing that those tests are true, but that God was the propelling force behind creating them. And the other question was, how old is Barney? I can't answer that. I can't answer that. Okay, just wanted to know. One other quick thing. So, I, didn't, I didn't really reference dinosaurs. Real quick. Yeah, I believe that they're true, but in, in Job chapter You believe 40, Barney is true? Is that? I, I'm not going to respond to that. <laughs> Trying to stay on track here. Yeah, but in Job chapter 40, there's a reference to a behemoth that some believe is, is a dinosaur. Some have said that maybe it's a hippopotamus or an elephant, but it says that its tail is likened to a cedar tree. And if you think about a hippopotamus or an elephant for that matter, they've just got these tiny little tails. That's not really like a cedar tree. So some say that, yeah, some of these um, references, even in the Old Testament, are to big beings like dinosaurs. Great. All right. Why do people live so much longer in the Old Testament? I know some of you, because you're really into nutrition and you're really into these things, you go, it's all because of the food coloring that we have in our food, you know. By the way, they're getting ready to take it all out. Fruit Loops, Lucky Charms. Can you imagine what that's gonna look like in just a few years? How many of you have enjoyed eating Lucky Charms over the years, and now all of a sudden, they're gonna take all the coloring out of it. It's not gonna be nearly as fun. Captain Crunch with Crunchberries, they're gonna keep the Crunchberries. Pretty excited about that. But a lot of people believe that that's why people lived longer in the Old Testament is because of what we eat today and what we don't eat that they used to eat. And it is somewhat of a mystery when you look at Scripture, certainly at the early chapters of Genesis, on why people lived such long lives. And there are several theories that are put forward. You know, you look at Abraham, and even later in the book of, in the book of Genesis, we read that Abraham died at the ripe old age of 175. And then before that, we read about Methuselah, who actually lived till 969 years. Can you imagine living 969 years? I mean, I can't imagine making it to 80 myself, but 969 years. So there are several theories that biblical scholars put forward. One is that the genealogy that we see in Genesis chapter 5 records the line of godly descendants of Adam, who would eventually, the Messiah, would come obviously through that line, and there are some scholars that say, well, based on that they were just so godly, that's why they lived so long. The problem with that theory, obviously, is that Adam, the first man, woman, uh, Eve, the first woman, they did what? They sinned, right? So they weren't totally godly. Uh, it wasn't like they were sinless. And so 
I'm not sure that that theory really does justice to answering that question. But in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Scripture mentions that the water above the expanse was a canopy of water that covered the entire earth. And scientists believe that, that such a water canopy would have created a great greenhouse effect on the earth. In other words, we wouldn't have gotten nearly as much radiation as we do now that hits uh, the earth. And so that would have resulted in ideal living conditions for human beings. And Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11, I believe, indicates that at the time of the flood, the water canopy actually was poured out on the earth. And so now that radiation makes its way to the earth. And as a result, our ages, the ages of human beings are drastically decreased. That seems to make a lot of sense to me. Another consideration is that in the first few generations after creation, the human genetic code obviously had not developed a lot of defects. And so if you follow the logic, Adam and Eve were created as two perfect human beings. And they were that way until, until they chose to sin and sin entered into the world. They were certainly highly resistant to disease and to illness and certainly their descendants in the generations right after that would have inherited some of those same advantages, maybe to a lesser degree, but still had those same advantages. But over time, obviously, as a result of sin, the human genetic code became increasingly corrupted. And as a result, we don't live nearly as long as human beings used to live. Now, having said all that, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I, I do believe this, and as much as sometimes I joke about it, I do believe that a lot of the problems that we have today with disease and with some of the things that, we, that, that happen in our lives is because we don't take care of our bodies. And again, I think a lot of evangelical Christians, we just kind of dismiss all that. We want to talk about drugs. We want to talk about alcohol. We want to talk about tobacco. We want to talk about all those things. Hey, don't talk to me about food, though, right? But it does have to do with, I believe, a lot of times what we choose to eat, not to eat, not, in, not exercising. I think those things all do play a factor uh, but I'm also reminded, uh, just in concluding this question, Psalm 90, verse 10, the psalmist wrote, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. So it seems pretty clear that we were meant to live in our physical temples only for a finite period of time. And that's how I would do my best to answer that question about why people lived longer uh, in the Old Testament. Okay. Well, the last one that we have to tackle here is a pretty easy one. It's about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You know, this is, a, this is an issue that, has, that people have been wrestling with literally for thousands of years, ever since the beginning when these things started to be talked about. Specifically, a couple of questions that came in. Does God choose those he will save? And therefore, if you aren't one of those, you are destined to hell. Another one came in, is it possible for predestination and free will to be 100% true? And so here you've got these two conflicting ideals that from reading scripture certainly seem that each of them standing alone, there's a lot of evidence for it, right? This whole idea about God's sovereignty, you know, that, that's a doctrine that I believe in wholeheartedly, the, the doctrine of election. I don't think anybody can, well, there's a lot of people that do, but I think it would be difficult to read through Old Testament and New Testament and just ex simply explain away several passages that talk about God choosing us. All right, here in Ephesians chapter one, verse three, it said this, blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So somehow we get the idea that even before the world began, even before anything was created, we were on God's mind. He knew us. He knew who Jerry was and Brian was. He knew about my life. He knew what family I'd be born into. He somehow chose me before the foundations of the world. It's mind-blowing, but it's right there. Continuing on, it says, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he predestined me and planned out my life in such a way that I was destined to experience things that were going to conform me more and more to his will. So at one level, you've got God's <coughs> sovereignty up here. And on another level, you've got the idea of man's responsibility. How much are we a part of this equation? As a matter of fact, there's two very big schools of thought as it pertains to this. Calvinists and people that would follow Arminius. Arminians are the two different schools of thought. And John Calvin was a man lived about 500 years ago. And he came out to a, with a lot of writings and, and a lot of people adhere to those today. Five main points. And to summarize, it's that God is sovereign. He chooses us. He draws us in. And you cannot resist when he calls you to himself. So it's all God. And then on the other side of the camp, you've got the Arminians who believe that the whole idea of predestination in election is based on God's foreknowledge. So he looked ahead over time, saw that Jerry would be smart enough to realize, oh, God's real, I'm going to choose him. And so that's looking ahead, he saw what I was going to do, and that's how I became part of who he chose. So there are two very different spectrums, and there's good godly people that land on this side and there's godly people that land on this side and what's really confusing is how do those two things reconcile together well i'm here to tell you this morning that i don't know when i was in my ordination with joe stoll the president of moody bible college he uh he explained it to me this way which has really stuck with me he said, we believe that God's sovereign. We believe that he chose us because it says it in scripture. And that's, you know, kind of the horizontal plane up here. But we also believe without a doubt that there's a vertical plane. Man is responsible over and over and over again in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. God personifies himself in such a way that says, if you choose this, then I will do this. But if you choose that, then I'm going to react this way. And that's what he does. He reacts based on what man does. That's the way he portrays himself in the Old Testament. And you see that all over. So we know at some level, man's got a responsibility. Man's got a decision to make. So Joe Stoll explained it to me this way. He said, it's almost as if there's a big giant box and you've got God's sovereignty up here, and you've got man's responsibility over here, kind of the more vertical, this is the more horizontal, and there's a big giant box that's right in between those things that we cannot see into. It's blocking our view. And somewhere in that box, those two things connect. They collide. 
And someday we're going to figure out and know and understand when we are, are there with God and we'll have different minds and different bodies and we can look back and see how all that worked. But for now, in our humanity, we just have to be comfortable with saying, man, I know scripture says I'm responsible to decide and to make a decision and to try and convince others. But at the same time, I know scripture says God's going to draw all men. He's going to be the one to open our eyes. He's the one that's sovereignly in control. Yeah, and, I, and I, I agree with what Jerry said, and just to, to kind of land the plane, if you are one of those people, and I know we've, you, there's some in every church, right, that really just love this debate with Calvinism and Arminianism and God's sovereignty over man's responsibility, you love that debate. That's not true of most of us. Most of you are going, I didn't know there was a person named Calvin and Arminius. I knew there were Armenians. They live over in you know, someplace like that, but I didn't know anything about that. Most of you don't care. It is important. We're not saying that, that it's not important and you shouldn't study and you shouldn't understand. But here's the thing. If you have this view or you hear a pastor that stands up in front of you and says, I got it all figured out. I know exactly how this works. If you feel that way this morning, I would love some time with you this week. I really would. I say that with all sincerity. If you figured that out and in your mind you have an answer as far as how all that goes together, just like little Legos, I would love to talk to you. If you talk to a pastor, if you hear somebody up front that dogmatically says they have that all figured out, they understand it, they don't. You should run from them, all right? I think there's always gonna be that tension there. We know that he's the sovereign God of the universe, that he, you can't, read Ephesians 1, you, you, you just can't get around the fact, as Jerry said, that he chose us, that he predestined us, and yet scripture is full of the obvious factor that God allows us also choices and decisions we're not on marionette strings yeah. and he just pulls those strings yeah and so we we should make sure that we don't make this an area of debate ad nauseum where we just keep going on and on and on about things that we can't know i believe we're going to get to heaven one day and as jerry said we're going to sit at the feet of god and we're going to say hey explain all that to us and he's going to do it and we're going to go it was that easy he's going to go is that easy it was right there but we just didn't quite get it. But one day, Paul says, we're gonna see it as it really is because we're gonna see him face to face and we, we rest on that for yeah. sure. A couple of quick scriptures that really impacted me as I was studying this about God's heart for the people of the world. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, listen to God's words. God says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord, rather am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked ways? Again, that calling that goes out, that please turn from your idols, come back to me, make this decision. And even in the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 37, he says, as he's coming down for his final week, looking over the city, Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Here's Jesus talking. I love you. I wish I could just embrace you. I wish you would come to me. I wish you would believe, but you are not willing. You've rejected this. So the personification so often you see is that there is a human element of decision. And one final sentence that I wrote here for me, my goal is that I want to preach, I want to live, I want to interact like an Armenian, like it depended on me. 
in the sense that I want to talk to my neighbors. I want to try and convince people. I want my heart to break for people just like Paul's did. And he spent night and day with tears, pleading, trying to convince as much as it was up to him. But at the end of the day, I want to have a good night's sleep just like a Calvinist would. Understanding that God is in control, God is sovereign, God is powerful, and it's ultimately up to him to give the grace enough to allow people's eyes to be opened and turned to him. Great. Well, these are just some of the questions. You've asked about 80 of them. So these are just a few. And Jerry and I were talking yesterday, and we decided on August 9th, we're going to do what we call the lightning round. How many of you watch Jim Cramer on CNBC? Some of you got some of those fans? Okay. Nobody likes Jim Cramer. <laughs> it's good. I don't really like him either. But he does what's called lightning round, and people call in and they ask questions about their favorite stocks. And what we're going to do on August 9th is we're going to allow you to do that. Now, before some of you get too excited that you think we're going to allow you to ask questions unfiltered, that's not going to happen, all right? We're not that... We were both born at night, but not last night, all right? That's not going to happen, all right? But we are going to allow you to ask them uh, just like that. And Jerry and I, along with a few other people, will be up here. And we'll, as, as I say so often, we'll either answer the question or we'll make up an answer and you won't know if we did, right? No, we won't do that. If we, if we don't know the answer, we'll just uh, tell you that. So be looking forward to August 9th because hopefully if a question hasn't been answered and you've got one at that particular point. And then over the next several weeks, too, we want to give you some resources where you can go on your own. There's a lot of good things on the web now where you can get great answers that we have great confidence that you'll find good answers uh, there as well. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word has the answers to life's questions. And I thank you for these opportunities that we're gonna have over the next several weeks to focus in on these things. God, I pray that we would not have a desire to simply ask questions and no answers just to be smarter sinners. God, we want to be transformed people. And we believe that that is the role of the Word of God in our life, that it is quick and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it has the capability of dividing right through to our souls, which will change the way that we behave this week as we leave this place. So we don't want to be just people seeking information. We want to be people who desire to have transformed lives because we know and are convinced of truth. And I pray that that will happen as we study these things over the next several weeks. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.